Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. Today we have Dr. Chad Asplund, who is a physician who has done a lot in his career, which we will talk about, but more so while we had him intra we're interested in having him on the podcast is he is a huge advocate for athletic trainers. There's many physicians out there that are, um, if you're on Twitter, there's several that we highly recommend you check out, but Dr. Asplund is definitely right up at the top of that. So we talk about uh, what he does and why it's important to him for advocating for athletic trainers and he goes into that and also what he's doing with the u.s council for athletes health which is making huge waves across the collegiate and even secondary school level of trying to provide the resources necessary to help those student athletes maintain good mental health find resources for mental health and really help out everybody in those areas get the resources again to make it the best situation possible lots was covered in the short episode uh, again as always we are powered by Mueller sports medicine please check them out for all their sports medicine needs uh, they are out with their revive uh, pneumatic compression product it is fantastic backed by science really affordable especially on a budget knowing people that have been constrained by budgets uh, is definitely worth checking out but without further ado please enjoy this episode This episode of Athletic Training Chat, we are on with Dr. Chad Asplund, who is the Executive Director of the U.S. Council for Athletes Health. If you're on Twitter at all around athlete health and safety, especially the athletic training realm, you've probably seen Dr. Asplund on there. Huge advocate for the profession, which is why we wanted to reach out, have a conversation. Uh, obviously, that's what this podcast is about, but it's always great to have other health professionals advocating for the profession so we wanted to talk about that and just everything that he's doing um for the world of athletes health mental health so on and so forth but before we start getting into all of those things i just wanted to turn it over to you to kind of fill in your background uh what you're doing now and then we'll jump into some of the conversation great thanks for having me excited to uh to, to, to talk on the pod um, I, I am a sports medicine physician. I've been doing this for about 25 years. I've, I've covered a variety of levels from professional to Olympic to college, big division one, small division one, D2, D3, high school recreation. Um, have had great interactions with athletic trainers along the way, have uh, been faculty in athletic training programs at Ohio State, at Georgia Southern. Uh, precepted athletic trainers um, at Mayo Clinic when I worked there. And so just have had a lot of experience with, uh, with athletic trainers uh, and really just value what, what you bring to the profession and feel that, you know, I often refer to athletic trainers as the number one piece of health and safety equipment for sports. And I really think that, you know, if you can't afford to have an athletic trainer, you probably can't afford to have sports. And so uh, just excited to, to be here. The company I work for now, the U.S. Council for Athletes Health, is a uh, health and safety consulting group. Uh, we work mainly with uh, universities and colleges, although we're branching out to 
national governing bodies and, and high school associations, as well as youth and rec sports. Um, and really, we help with uh, education around health and safety. Uh, we have a great mental health bundle, DEI education. We have a neat policy and procedure tool that can help uh, organizations uh, create policies that they need rather easily. We have an emergency action plan tool, which can help those that may be stumped on how or what needs to go into their EAP. And then finally, we're available for either online or on-site assessments of programs to just check a 360 view of what the culture is around health and safety and see how we can collaborate to provide solutions uh, to help uh, organizations or institutions get better. Kind of just diving a little bit more into the, you know, the U.S. Council for Athletes Health. Obviously, you as a physician, MD, um, being the executive director, what other health professionals are within the company that contribute to all the things you just mentioned? So we have uh, other physicians. Uh, we have uh, a large number of athletic trainers, uh, many of whom have had, uh, you know, experience at college or high school or professional sports. We've got uh, former athletic directors, we've got an athletic administrator, and then we have sort of our IT support people. We have um, marketing communications, and then we have sort of a financial person to manage the, the finances of the company. But, but really we have uh, a wide variety of expertise across what most athletic departments would need as far as health and safety. What drew you to going into this line of work? Uh, just as what you said, um, you know, you worked pretty much with every level of athletics, you know, worked at Mayo Clinic, um, big universities. You know, anytime you throw out Ohio State around anything, that's obviously there's a lot going on there. Um, they tend to be at the forefront of many things. What, what drew you um, to this verse being in the clinical setting? And, and I'm not sure if you're still clinically practicing or not, if you could elaborate. Yeah, I'm still practicing clinically at Georgia Southern University, just okay. one day a week now, and I do help uh, continue with coverage for football and basketball, um, where I, I was the head team physician at Georgia Southern for five years and was a solo physician there. Uh, now I'm sort of a, a helper and a part-time fill-in physician, gotcha. I cover a couple football games a year and a couple basketball games, so allow me to stay in it, but without that day-to-day -day grind. Um, the company kind of started, you know, the NCAA continues to put out best practices around health and safety. They have about six documents that outline what they think are the best practices. Um, and when I was at Ohio State, you know, we had athletic trainers with every sport. We had six or seven primary care physicians, four orthopedic physicians in athletics. We had tons of resources we had difficulty meeting all of the requirements that the NCAA had put out. And so we thought if we are having difficulty with <laughs> lots of people and lots of resources, you know, then a lot of smaller institutions are really going to struggle. So what if we put together a company that helped smaller institutions or if we created solutions for institutions so that they could meet their NCAA best practices? And then it sort of expanded from there around mental health and and other things that, you know, has kind of popped up, but that was really sort of the genesis of the company. At the beginning, it was mainly a side gig, and then um, COVID 
was good for us and was bad for us. It was good because we worked with a lot of organizations to help them get through their seasons and uh, with COVID and all of that stuff. Um, but we have contracts with the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and a couple other Division One contracts. And once we got that Big Ten contract, that allowed this to go from a side gig to a full-time gig. Sure. And that's when I got into full-time consulting um, and left Mayo Clinic. Um, I miss clinical medicine, but I think my ability to make an impact at a larger level um, is here as a consultant, and that's kind of why I made the jump. Makes complete sense. I'm kind of a offshoot of that, and this is for people listening is going to go a little bit more to the collegiate setting. You mentioned those best practice documents, and that I find that fascinating that you guys had complexity figuring out at Ohio State just knowing working at the division three level for a bunch of years, what we were trying to put into place to at least meet them kind of your take on like, yes, there are great recommendations, but it also kind of put people in a really hard spot of, you know, you have to, you really want to follow them, but sometimes that's almost impractical as you mentioned versus requirements and kind of the NCAA sort of kind of riding a fine line of what they did there. If you wouldn't mind, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and so off, off the top of my head, they're the inner association recommendations uh, for prevention of catastrophic uh, injuries and death. Yep. There's the cardiac best practices, yep. the concussion best practices, mental health, um, racism in sport. Um, and there's one more that might pop up in my head here in a second, but they okay. were all documents put out by the NCAA. The NCAA goes through a very academic process as they do this out of their Sports Science Institute. And I think they have the best intentions in mind when putting these things together, but I'm not sure when is the last time that Brian Hayline or John Parsons from the NCAA um, was in an athletic training room or on a college campus trying to, to provide that care when you've got limited number of athletic trainers you've got a lot of events you've got and what you don't have is a lot of time to get this stuff done and so i think the ncaa had the best intentions i think they want to put these things in in, in play i went through all six documents i pulled out all of the pertinent stuff like the important stuff the must do's and it took up four uh single uh space pages um of just must do's and so that's a challenge for anybody, really. I think, you know, the inner association guidelines are the only one of those that are required, if you will. Mm -hmm. but, you know, if you get into a legal situation, lawyers know about those documents and are going right. to look and see, you know, did you do uh, cardiac pre-participation screening? Did you have the things in place? You know, and so the NCAA, again, in their efforts to protect athletes, sometimes can hamstring institutions especially smaller institutions yeah we always kind of felt like it was a damned if you do damned if you don't type situation you know trying to figure out on a cardiac screen like yes you could put in and which we did on the physical kind of the 14 point screening um we attempted to try and do some cardiac screening it got a little dodgy just working with different companies doing it it, just, it wasn't a great solution and then you know not every place has resources we had a cardiac rehab major we could have used but not everybody has that and so yeah it puts it into a really hard spot 
kind of, we're going to stick kind of with your U.S. counsel on um, very curious as to what you have found to be most successful in approaches for getting this advocacy and getting organizations to jump on these things. You mentioned, I think the PAC 12 and the big 10, obviously those are huge players and getting people to commit to that. Cause I think the advocacy part just in general is always a struggle, no matter what the profession to get those key stakeholders who may not be medical professionals to buy in. Um, especially in the world of ADs and commissioners and things, what, what have you found to be the most successful? Well, I mean, so the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the ACC and around their alliance, uh, the, the, the centerpiece of that alliance was athlete physical and mental health. And so I would say that they've been on the forefront of at least pushing for um, resources available for their athletes. And so, you know, we uh, had a presentation to the, the Pac-12 medical group and, uh, you know, they were in strong support. Um, they re recommended that to their ADs and presidents and, and their ADs and presidents felt that that would be the, the way to go. The NCAA within their concussion um, management protocol guidelines state that member institutions must comply with the inter-association recommendations. And so a lot of it is we, we have tools to help institutions comply with those inter-association guidelines. And so that's been sort of our easiest sell. You know, it's, it's sometimes frustrating that you've got a lot of uh, athletic directors and administrators, and they'll say over and over that health and safety is our number one priority, but then they're, you know, paying coaches millions of dollars, they're building new facilities. And a recent NCAA budget study showed that less than 1% of university expenditures in athletics go towards health and safety. And so it's really not a priority yet, and I think um, I think it needs to be. Um, but you're right; it's a it's a tough carrot to 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 break. Sometimes I think institutions are eager to pay for things that they think can turn into wins, you know, such as strength and conditioning and facilities and sure. coaching and things like that. And it seems that you know, as Jim Borchers, our CEO and founder, often says, is that uh, typically. Um, Sports medicine is a uh, necessity, but not a priority. And I think we need to kind of flip that. Do you guys use a lot of data to help potentially show some of that? Or is it, you know, a combination of, you know, stories and examples, you know, you see a lot of things, you know, pay salaries instead of lawsuits, you know, and obviously that gets complex because different funding comes from different areas, as does, you know, per your point of, 1% only going to sports med, yet you see mil tens of millions of dollars of payouts for coaches that are let go. I, that money comes funneling in from somewhere else, but anything from the data or stories or combination that seem to be most effective? Yeah, there's there's not a ton of, of data. The studies just really haven't been done where, you know, if you follow these best practices, then you have X fewer injuries or, you know, financial expenditure, there hasn't been a lot of data. What we have been successful with is looking at it around risk management and doing what you can proactively to minimize risk. We're all aware of big lawsuits where institutions have paid out millions and millions of dollars. And for an institution to pay somewhere between $2,500 and $6,000 a year, which is not a lot of money to plug in our proactive programming, 
that's a heck of a lot less than hiring lawyers to, to defend you in a lawsuit, much less sure. pay out uh, a major lawsuit. And so I think we look at risk mitigation and then providing those resources for the athletes. If you look at the last five or six years of student athlete advisory council minutes, one of the things that the athletes are, are just begging for is to have their mental health and their physical health protected. There was a study that came out um, that showed that athletes would be more interested in having health and safety protection than they would uh, NIL money and things like that. And so mm. really that's a number one request of the athletes. And so you would like to think that athletic directors and departments would focus on what their athletes are asking for. And so it's a combination of risk mitigation, what the athletes want, and then trying to uh, demonstrate that we're an affordable solution that can give them, you know, resources. Kind of switching over to your advocacy for ATs, your line, and I've seen you post it before about, you know, it's the most essential piece of protective sports, you know, you know, thing that you can put in for sports safety. Um, you talked a little bit about what has driven uh, that, you know, in your interaction with athletic trainers, but what else might be unique about the profession that you see and you advocate strongly for? Well, I mean, I mean, I think almost every athletic trainer that I've, I've ever dealt with, I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the personalities of people that go into professions, athletic trainers are, are hardworking, they're dedicated, they're selfless. Um, they often put their athletes above themselves. Um, but they're also the most knowledgeable people when it comes to responding to athletic emergencies. And that is really the key piece. And if you look at a lot of these just catastrophic injuries that can happen, you know, and you see headlines periodically of athletic trainers saving lives because they're there. Um, and so it's just from my experience and just what I've seen is that athletic trainers kind of are like, I call them the Swiss army knife of uh, sports medicine. I mean, sure. you guys, I think the main issue is that when you look at, you know, athletic administrators, they see you guys standing on the sidelines. They might see you handing out ice bags and taping ankles, but that's, they don't have a full scope of what athletic trainers do around, you know, emergency planning, rehearsing, um, training or educating athletes, making sure that, venues are set up so that emergency response can happen. Um, and I think some of that is, you know, I always say that perception equals reality plus communication. And so athletic trainers really need to focus on communicating to those stakeholders what it is that they actually do. And, you know, I advocate for ATs to invite their athletic director down for a tour of the facility to see what they do every day just because it's a lot more than ice bags and ankles. And, and I think that until administrators kind of understand that, I think we're still gonna see potentially low salaries and, and, and sort of this struggle. Um, but I just think that athletic trainers, one, they're so important in emergency response. Two, when you look at the numbers of, you know, and Mike Hopper and a couple other guys out on Twitter put out a lot of these reimbursement or cost savings, if you will, athletic trainers are probably the most affordable solution for especially high schools, certainly college, sure. when it comes to taking care of your athletes and loss avoidance or 
you know, loss of time away from training and games. Um, and, you know, you, you're saving parents and, and athletes money by doing those rehabs in the training room, as opposed to sending them out to, to physical therapy. So they help with safety, they save money. And then they're really on the forefront of mental health. I mean, athletic trainers interact with athletes every day. Other than coaches, they may be the person who sees an athlete almost every day. And so ATs know when little Johnny is not acting normal. You know, right. I might see someone after a concussion and I'm like, wow, this, this uh, athlete's kind of weird. And maybe he is weird, but right, maybe right. that's the concussion. But the athletic trainers can sense day to day if someone's not, you know, normal or they've got that trust built with the athlete where they've got that open communication. And so ATs are also on that front line of mental health. And I think that's so important today. And that's really part of what adds the value to to having an athletic trainer. How have you in your physician role, you know, you mentioned team physician help to advocate or do you see a physician's role because i just know again in my experience we can say a tell we're blue in the face but sometimes it just takes coming from that different perspective and right wrong or otherwise you know physicians have a, a clout that maybe just goes a little bit further even if you're saying the exact same thing happens all the time even in the care of a patient <laughs> we could say the same thing but when you say it it's absolutely gold which is great when everybody's on the same page but what have you seen from your perspective in terms of engaging stakeholders and the importance of athletic trainers? Well, I mean, obviously, um, you know, it's, it, you know, you pointed it out and, and right or wrong, you know, I think administrators, athletic directors will listen to doctors more than they would listen to athletic trainers. Um, and so it's important, I think, for team physicians to really advocate for their athletic trainers. You know, I challenge my athletic trainers to practice at the top of their scope. We write out the protocols to maximize the things that they're good at and to allow them do, to do what athletic trainers are supposed to do. Um, and you have to develop that, that trust between your athletic trainer and the team physician. Also, my role is to develop my ATs. If there are skills that they need, you know, some ATs have a lot more skills if they've been out for a while and they've done extra certifications. But it's my job to make sure that my ATs are able to practice at the top of their licensure or at the, the top of their profession. And then, you know, I let them do it. And that sort of helps build that relationship. But as far as advocacy goes, you know, when you look at that sports medicine team that takes care of athletes, and if you step back and you look within the athletic administration and athletic department, Everybody wants the athletes to be safe and they want a good outcome. But part of that is making sure that everybody's on the same page. And so the physician should be advocating for the athletic trainer or standing up for them in, in times when they need to, whether that's for money, whether it's for more personnel, whether it's for better conditions. And so I've always felt that, um, you know, it's my, my role to advocate for my athletic trainers, which ultimately helps our sports medicine team be better. I can appreciate that. So thank you for doing that with, especially the group you work with. Kind of going more big picture, almost asking you to look into your crystal ball, which we'll do a couple times on this. You know, you're on the forefront, especially as you talked about, you know, athlete mental health and their care. 
um, kind of specifically talking, you know, in the collegiate setting uh, with who you've been working with, but also in the high school, as we've seen that everything kind of trickle down. Where do you see sports going in regards to that in the future? And is it becoming too big or is it going to be able to kind of bring it back to make these things a priority before it maybe, I don't know if it would ever implode, but, you know, that too big to fail thing kind of seems like it could be around the corner, especially in power five football and whatnot. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I, I kind of look at sport right now as a runaway train and you've got sort of the athletes that are hanging on for dear life. You know, many of these college athletes for sure are over, overwhelmed and they feel out of control and things like $8 billion big 10 TV deals, you know, they don't slow the train down. That's just going to speed things up. Right. And I think for the mental health of athletes, you know, what I've noticed in my time in college athletics is there used to be an off season for sports like fall soccer played in the fall and then they really didn't do a whole lot in the spring, but now there's yeah. a spring season, you know, they're, they, they finish the season, they get like a week off and then they're back for strength and conditioning. They go home for Christmas. They're back for strength and conditioning. They're yeah. there over the summer and there's really never a break for, you know, these college athletes to just be college students you know, it's all about sport and there's really not a time for them to pause and do self-care and, and take care of things. And the NCAA is really the one that's going to have to limit the contact hours that athletes can have to give them some of that time back to maybe limit what they can do in the off season or give them more time to just focus on those things. I think it's very important that a lot of athletic departments are adding more resources like psychologists and, and counselors. But unless we slow the train down, I, I think that that's, it's going to continue to be a problem. What's further sort of kind of disturbing is that if you take a step back into that youth uh, sports market, that high school sports market, those areas have been very professionalized. And so now you know, I just got back from a USA basketball camp in uh, Colorado Springs, where I, I serve as the medical director for the junior national teams. But, you know, you've got kids that are playing high school basketball, AAU basketball, USA basketball. And there's a lot of entities which are benefiting from these players playing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think all the time, as far as youth athletics go, that the athlete is, you know, the, the main concern. I think it's winning. I think it's money. And it, there was an interesting study that came out that showed that the more money parents pay for their kids to play sports, the less their kids enjoy them. And so that kind of starts that pressure, that athletic pressure for children, you know, at age 10 or age 12. And that kind of pushes through into that college space. But really... We've got to slow the train down, allow these kids to do that self-care that they need to do. We talk a lot about mental wellness and creating a culture of mental wellness, which is more than just the absence of mental illness. Um, but a lot of that comes from coaches. It comes from giving the athletes a voice. It com comes from giving them some control and things like that. And, and so those are all things I think that need to happen within that college space so that we can kind of minimize the, you know, epidemic of mental health crises that we're, we're seeing. 
haven't been in the D1 world for a while, but I can imagine how that keeps exploding. But even in the D3, in my seven years doing it, all of our coaches went from some sort of head coaches went from some sort of split position to 1.0 coaches, division three athletics, not saying they're not important. They are, but then also it, it seems very strange because within the NCAA, it's a member run organization. So a lot of these things that are more contact, more contact are being driven by coaches and athletic directors who are ultimately voting on it. And I'd be curious if, you know, where that falls because it continued to just feel like that that now the non-traditional season is basically becoming another season and you don't know how to cover i know i've heard stories of you know true in-season fall sports can't get coverage because there's now requirements to that somebody has to be at baseball or softball due to live pitching so you're not even giving the athletes that are currently in their actual season the care they need because you're off doing something who aren't fully competing until that spring and that uh, just makes it really tough. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, if we kind of step back and think about sort of this uh, athletic trainer crisis, if you will, you know, I think there's, you know, there's the, the way we do it. And if you look at cross athletics at, you know, communication, fundraising, marketing, recruiting, those have all evolved. You know, we don't do those things like we did 20 years ago but we're still trying to provide athletic medicine like we did 20 years ago. Sure. And I think we really need to take a step back and look at, you know, what practices need to be covered? What, where is the athletic trainer best suited? You know, if you have two athletic trainers at your university, you know, that gives you, you know, 80 hours of athletic trainer coverage. How can we best utilize that 80 hours in a way that, you know, maximizes health and safety, doesn't burn out our athletic trainers, but that's going to have to be different than one athletic trainer per team. And, you know, coaches can schedule practices whenever they want and they can change them at the last minute. And you've got one athletic trainer in the weight room supervising six kids lifting weights, you know, because that's when their team wants to lift. And then you've got another one that's got to come in to watch 12 kids lift weights. You know, and you could do a lot of combination, but I think now is that time. We've done a lot of work with a lot of D2 and D3 conferences that are really feeling the pinch of not having the athletic trainers that they normally would have. You know, typically Absolutely. you'd post an athletic training position, you'd get 100 applications for that position. And I think that led to, well, you know, we'll just treat these athletic trainers, however, and if they leave, we'll just get another one. Right. Right. But I think ATs right now have that leverage to kind of take a step back, look at things, have that communication with the athletic directors and the coaches to say, look, we are understaffed or we are minimally staffed. We need to do things in a way to maximize importance. You know, let's find a way that we can, you know, co-practice, co-lift. You know, maybe you're going to have a different AT travel with you, or maybe we don't travel, or maybe we're going to kind of take our uh, team of athletic trainers and we will utilize them within a pool of athletes rather than kind of the, the traditional model. And so I, I think it's really important now to look at how do we provide athletic medicine? What makes sense? How do we maximize what athletic trainers need to be doing? Um, you know, does an AT need to be a tennis practice? Well, probably not. I mean, if they're available, I mean, and this is where it's so important for coaches to be trained in emergency response because coaches Absolutely. are always going to be at practice. 
Yep. So if coaches know how to recognize an emergency, how to respond to an emergency and how to refer, you know, either to mental health or to get the health system rolling, you know, that will be helpful and it will limit some of this, what I'll call unnecessary or low yield coverage that a lot of athletic trainers are doing that are wasting, you know, wasting their time and, and, and overburdening them. And I've had a conversation with another AT, the kind of the care versus coverage model. Where's the value of your athletic trainer? And that I've had those own battles in my career of, I think it's in the care. Like obviously the coverage when it's necessary, high risk type things. But if that's all you're doing and there's nobody there to do the treatments and the rehabs, you're not going to have many people to cover. <laughs> right. They're all going to be hurt. So, yeah. But I, that, I, that I, treatment and rehab side is a piece that those athletic administrators don't typically see. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't see, you know, what you're doing in the training room. You know, they don't see the administrative load. They don't see the insurance billing. They don't see all of that stuff that, you know, if, if you think about moving athletic medicine into the 20th century, when you go to the doctor's office, the doctor is not the one that checks you in. The doctor is not the one that scans your insurance. The doctor is not the one that takes your vital signs and puts you in the room, not right. the one that checks you out. There are separate people that do that. And I think when you look at athletic trainers, I mean, there needs to be more of an administrative structure to help them do what they do and, you know, maybe have other people to do those other pieces. Absolutely. Anything that we haven't covered, kind of talking about the broad topic that you'd like to cover before we jump into those athletic training chat questions? I just, you know, I, I know that uh, athletic trainers are often underappreciated and, uh, you know, just want them to know that sports medicine physicians appreciate the athletic trainers. We recognize that you're smart, dedicated, selfless that you're very important to the overall coverage and uh, the health of athletes. Um, and just thank you for all that you do and keep doing what you're doing. I think one thing that's been very interesting and colleges have been kind of caught off guard by this, although they really shouldn't, is that you've got other entities that are realizing the value of athletic trainers. You've got industry, you've got the military, you've got clinical settings, all of which are offering better pay and better hours for athletic trainers you know a, a place like amazon finds that if they have athletic trainers in their warehouses you know they've got more productivity and so they would rather pay for an at to come in for four days a week to work on ergonomics and do some rehabs and make sure that their warehouse employees are able to get the job done um, and they're paying you know premium for that and the colleges and the high schools have just missed the boat and the model that they continue to use is outdated and broken. And they're going to have to step up to be able to compete with what the military industry and others are offering. I saw a job post for an FBI athletic trainer salary. I was just thinking of that one. 86 and 115,000. And that's, you know, that's kind of where it, it should be. I don't want to, I don't want to diss on the entry level masters, uh, but I, I do think that that has created a shortage of people going into the pipeline. COVID created a, an outflux of people just because they were finally the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And then you've got these other entities which are now hiring athletic trainers. And those three things came together to create this storm 
that is now leaving high schools and, and universities kind of running around with their head cut off wondering what can we do um, when if they had provided a supportive environment, a, a culture of health and safety, you know, ATs never got in this profession for money. They deserve a lot more than they're typically paid, but they got in it to help the athletes. And I think ATs get out when they're continually challenged by administrators or coaches or parents on what they're doing when they're not supported. And I think if administrators create that culture of health and safety, you know, that goes a long way, but that has to come from the top. That has to come from athletic directors. And that's what we preach when we go out and do our on-site visits, when we meet with ADs and presidents, that that culture of health and safety needs to be present. Um, and so just want to thank athletic trainers. Hopefully we can continue to keep ATs in the profession, keep you guys working at the top of your skill level and uh, keeping athletes safe and healthy. Well, I appreciate that on behalf of me and as many people as I can think of in the profession. So appreciate that. Jumping into the AT chat questions, we were just kind of talking about this, but again, along with the athletic healthcare model, where do you see athletic training going in the next five to 10 years, kind of from your perspective? I think it's at a, it's at a, um, a delicate point right here. I think the relative shortage of athletic trainers um, may force certain entities to think about doing things in different ways. I hope that it doesn't. I hope that there isn't EMTs or physical therapists or some other people that are filling in that space where athletic trainers need to be just because of that relative athletic training shortage. I think the profession needs to figure out a way to, well, there needs to be a large scale effort to advocate for better wages, better working conditions for athletic trainers. and. And until that happens, I think we're going to be in this difficult situation. What I would like to see is for there to be a sustainable model that has, you know, ideally an athletic trainer in every institution. We know that's not going to happen because there's just not enough athletic trainers, but that more places have the ATs that they need, that they're using them in a creative, imaginative way to maximize their skills, and that it hasn't been kind of picked off by other professions just because there's a shortage and you know if you've got a hole and you need something maybe an EMT or a PT or a PTA or something could fill that hole and I hope that 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 doesn't happen definitely what advice would you give yourself if you could go back when you were a younger medical professional and if you could set kind of when that was yeah, and so I've been in the profession for 25 years. I, I think that, you know, if you look back, it's it's tough. You know, I had a, a very insightful question asked when I interviewed for a head team physician job at a major a major university, and it was it was asked of me by an orthopedist of all people. But he had said, you know, so why is it that you want to stand out and watch other people's children play sports? when you may miss your own children playing sports. And I think, <laughs> you know, and that was a pretty insightful question. And it was yeah. kind of like, wow, I can't believe you're asking that question when I'm applying to be a team physician here and cover, you know, sports at your institution. But, you know, I think early on, you know, we, we want to say yes to everything. We want to, 
be available. We want to be seen. We want to have those opportunities. And I think just setting more reasonable boundaries, um, doing things that really matter or that are really impactful rather than loading a schedule with, with stuff just to do it. Um, And so I think that's a challenge. I think it's a fine line as you're trying to develop from a junior person up through the, uh, up through the senior level. But I think one of the ways to combat burnout is to set reasonable boundaries. And so I probably would have said no more, probably would have focused on the things that I think are more important and probably would have factored in a day or two a week to really just kind of step away and, and let it go. All of that is very hard at the Division One level or even at the Division right. Three level where sports has become a 24-7 operation. But, right. you know, sometimes you just have to turn off the phone or the pager and kind of say, you know, I've got to take a day. So really what I would do is set clearer boundaries, say no more often and, and allow more time to recharge, you know, oh, because if you can't take care of yourself, then you're not going to be available to take care of anyone else. Absolutely. What has been the most influential resource that you have found in your career? Most influential resource really has been, you know, the mentors that I've had. I've had been really fortunate to have some great people that have, you know, poured into me and and, and given me knowledge and opportunities, you know, and it's fun because I'm now at that part of my career where I'm sure. giving people opportunities and then helping people move up in their careers. Um, and so I really think it's, you know, surrounding yourself with good people and those can be you know other physicians they can be athletic administrators i learn a ton from athletic trainers just in their day-to-day business and i i think um you've got to really if you are a sports medicine physician you can learn from so many people along along the way i've learned from ats from pts i've learned from podiatrists from chiros And so you never, you know, never take an opportunity to kind of learn something and just don't think that, you know, it's only has to be a physician or a senior physician or somebody that's really a leader in the field, kind of step back and allow people to, uh, you know, impart their wisdom into you and never think you're above, you know, what someone else might be able to teach you. I like that. That seems that's a, seems to be a recurring theme with a lot of people. It's just how important the people you're around are for that. So, yeah, and that that really underscores the importance of when you get in a position where you're now one of those people, right? You know, that can can pay it pay it back or pay it forward, if you will. That you really have to take the time and and you know, I got to where I am because a lot of people were willing to help me, and now I've got to go back and help people that are, you know, sort of in my sphere. And I, and I've taken that seriously and really tried to help my, my residents, fellows, athletic trainers, medical students. And so just trying to pay it forward. Absolutely. As a physician in your role, how do you take care of yourself? Well, you have, you know, exercise for sure. You know, I'm, I would probably a self-described exercise addict, but you know, that's just (laughs) something I've got to do every day. I've got to get the heart pumping. Um, you know, I like to swim, bike, run. I like to CrossFit occasionally just to get some stuff out there. Um, so exercise for sure. Sleep, I think is the most important thing. I think in, in most busy people's lives, sleep is the thing that goes. And I think you've got to take time to reflect and you've got to take time for yourself. 
we've got we're in a world now where there's so much information i mean you can with your phone get you know anything you want whenever you want it but i think we've got to sort of take at least 15 minutes a day to get away from the devices to just let your brain recharge and into just re-energize and to give them a chance to just you know shut down for a bit um, but it's really sort of those recoveries for yourself each day that you have to do that kind of keep me going i like it um if you could change or eliminate one thing a modality a common practice a mindset in just the medical or the sports medicine field we'll just we'll keep it very broad what would it be that's a challenging question you know like off the top of my head i'd say kinesio tape but that's you know <laughs> that, that's uh, cruel and, and probably unfounded um you know i i think that when i think of modalities that i would eliminate you know i don't know you know because if an athlete thinks it works it could work and so i think it depends on how you sell the modality sure um not a big fan of ultrasound for, I mean, I, I am a fan of diagnostic ultrasound, not a fan of ultrasound as a treatment. Um, kinesio tape, obviously we talked about, it's funny. My son is a division one athlete at Auburn. He had a little bit of an injury and his athletic trainer said, well, we could try this kinesio tape. And he laughed at her and said, my dad said that stuff doesn't work. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's probably what I would eliminate, but really negatism, negativism, I think that if I sure. could eliminate, if I could eliminate coaches from trying to be medical people, that would probably be the thing I would eliminate the most. I mean, um, we don't help them call plays and and, and we don't expect right. them to help provide the, the medical stuff. And really, we should just be able to tell them when an athlete's ready, you know, but that's the thing I, I see that interferes most with what we do is these coaches thinking that they're doctors or medical people. Um, and that would be one thing that I would eliminate. I like that one. Final question. Uh, what does working with and advocating for athletic trainers mean to you? It's really important to me. You know, ultimately, you know, I got into sports medicine to, you know, help protect the, the health and safety of athletes. You know, as we've mentioned on the podcast, I think athletic trainers are the number one you know, thing that keeps athletes safe. Um, they have such a great skill set as far as emergency response, you know, rehab, planning, um, improvising, um, that it, it really means to me that if I think athletic trainers are the most important part of that puzzle, that we need to keep having those puzzle pieces in the picture in order to create the best environment for health and safety. And so advocating for athletic trainers is so important. Um, and that's why it's important to me. You know, in an ideal world, we'd have at least one AT at every institution across the country. I think the evidence has shown that ATs save lives, ATs save money, um, and ATs do a, a tremendous job of, of identifying early mental health issues. All of those things are things we say we want and we need, but we need to kind of put our money where our mouth is, get athletic trainers to make sure that our kids and our athletes are safe when they're playing sports. I like it. I'm kind of in closing, anything else that you want to share? And then if people wanted to find out more information about what you're doing with the U.S. Council uh, on Athlete 
you know, health um, or follow you or connect, what would be the best options? Yeah, I, I don't have anything more to add. I think we've covered uh, pretty much everything. You know, as you mentioned earlier, I am on, on Twitter at, at Chad Asplund, one word. Um, the U.S. Council for Athletes Health is at www.uscah.com or www.uska.com. Um, and those are really the places where people can follow me. Um, you know, send me a DM on, on uh, tw Twitter if you want uh, to connect or if there's any way that I can help advocate for you and your situation or if there's a, a solution perhaps we could provide. Um, but again, I'm going to continue to advocate for athletic trainers until we get the situation right, which might take a long time, um, but we'll keep pushing. Really appreciate you having me on the pod today. Uh, love to love to talk sports medicine and love to support athletic trainers. So, so thanks a lot. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, know you're busy as you mentioned, just going all over the country for multiple different things, but really thank you again for the advocacy and just the passion for the profession and the support. Uh, I know it means a lot to athletic trainers, especially as that comes down, you know, from physicians. So thank you again for that. And I uh, really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for checking out this episode of Athletic Training Chat. If you are not on Twitter, um, but if you're on social media, check out Dr. Chad Asplund. He has a ton out there, a huge advocate, always retweeting articles um, around athletic trainers. So well worth uh, checking out him, just even if it's to gather some more information, maybe help your own situation. Uh, check out more episodes at athletictrainingchat.com. Got some new things coming that we're excited to get going here in the near future that we'll be reaching out to. As always, we are powered by Mueller Sports Medicine. Again, when we talk about advocacy for the profession, they are second to none. They embrace so much of what we do and want to help us do it at the highest level. So check them out for your sports medicine needs. And without that, see you all next episode.